0: Artemis endeavors to get more women and girls in the field and on the water to support women as leaders in the conservation movement to ensure the vitality of our lands, waters and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Everybody, this is your host uh, Marsha Brownlee with the Artemis Podcast, and uh, I'm I'm very excited to talk to you today with two brand new things happening here at the Artemis Podcast. One is that we are outside in the field uh, testing what it's like to have a conversation when we can hear birds in the background, which is going to be delightful. And second, we are having an in-person conversation, which is the first time we've ever done that on the Artemis Podcast. Typically, we do it. Um, online even before the pandemic so I'm excited and I'm excited that we are joined uh, for this brand new adventure by Mandela Van Eden who is the newest member of the National Wildlife Federation's um, sporting arm which is NWF Outdoors She was hired a month ago, is that right? Yeah, a month ago to be our communications person, Uh, and I'm excited to have her on the team, and I'm excited for you all to get
1: to know her. So Mandela, welcome. It is such a beautiful day. We are not going to tell you exactly where we're sitting, (laughs) but uh, I will say that there are some amazing red-winged blackbirds that are flying on to some cattails, and the cattails sway back and forth when they land, and... It's a beautiful forest full of ponderosa larch and dug fir. The grass is a polychromatic array of green and it's tick season. I thought I would <laughs> you know maybe wait till the end before I told Marsha that she wasn't sitting here <laughs> no. uh, wiping off the, the potential ticks, but've I've already pulled two off. Um, so it's check so yourself, out. check it's yourself. Out. That's one of the one of the side effects of recording in the field, but it I'm very inspired when I look down into the meadow right now and Look at a butterfly flying across. This is, this is where I feel most comfortable, is um, being outside and and sharing stories. Side tick story.
0: <laughs> While we're at it, my sister and her family, um, who are from Ohio, came to visit, and we went on a hike, um, which is one of my favorite things to do with people who are here from out of town. Uh, and my nephew, um, who's a city boy, nine years old, lovely individual, um, does not care for bugs. Um, And found a tick and reacted um, strongly. (laughs) And I realized that in my time, I've developed it. I mean, nobody likes them. They're gross. And and I feel them crawling in my hair at night sometimes when it's in the spring. Um, But I realized that I've actually come quite accustomed to having them be a part of my outdoor experience. So. Mm. I, I don't know what to say, except I won't react that strongly <laughs> should I find one. We'll be good. Right. <laughs> yep. They're just a part of being outside. Exactly. Um, Mandela, tell us a little bit about
1: yourself. So my family is kind of split between rooting deeply in Montana and rooting deeply in Southern Africa. So going back about 400 years, my family's been in South Africa since 1652 on my father's side and uh, all Afrikaans. And so that's another story in itself, but uh, come from a farming dairy background in South Africa. And my grandmother purchased a area of land on the most southern tip of Africa by working with farmers during the years of apartheid and turned that into a private nature reserve. And that nature reserve is located right at the most southern tip, right on the Indian Ocean. So if you were to look at a map of the continent of Africa and you were to walk for a few days up the Indian Ocean to the east, you'll come to a big bay called San Sebastian Bay. And that's where the southern right whale calves. And it's also an environment that is lush with what we call Feinbos in South Africa. And it's kind of like a Mediterranean bushveld environment and um, it's that nature reserve is home to an array of bird life and snake life the largest mammal that you'll probably see on the reserve is called the bontebok and in southern africa the word bok means deer so we have hemsbok and a springbok and a bontebok the bontebok are chocolate brown in color with a white belly and white markings coming down from its eyes and one and a half curls to its black horns but uh, Growing up, I spent about six months of the year living in the bush with my parents. And we lived in a thatch hut. It was an A-frame thatch hut. The thatch was made from the environment. It grows right outside the hut with this whole concept of blending in with the land and living alongside the animals and the birds and the snakes, uh, living with them, coexisting, being a steward of the land. And so as a child, I, I learned to Uh, take only what you need and to gather from the sea. We'd go out to the tide pools with my dad and um, we sometimes would collect octopus and then later on we decided not to eat octopus anymore but we would catch that with our bare hands and um, my dad would go out to sea and as time went on he would have to go farther and farther out to sea as overfishing became a problem. But we would keep an eye out for poachers and um, just take care of that environment. And so about six months of the year, I lived there and in the bush, just my parents and I, um, clothing was optional. I peed in the bush, I, um, you know, ticks were a, 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 daily, a, occurrence. a daily occurrence. Uh, and then then juxtaposition. My mother is from Montana. So my mother comes from Valir, Montana, which is right up in North Central Montana. And um, I think she's about fourth generation Montanan. My grandfather was a hunting, packing guide in the Bob Marshall, as well as a farmer. He also sold John Deere tra- tractors. And um, my mom grew up fly fishing and hunting with her father and, and having a deep appreciation for the wilderness of Montana, in particular the grizzly bears. And um, my mom would lay on her back on the shores of Lake Francis, which is there in Valier. And uh, she would look up at the sky. And we're talking the 40s now because my mother was born in 1941. And she would dream of this world outside of Valere. And, and she embraced that in the early 60s by starting a 40-year career with United Airlines. Mm-hmm. And so um, my mother worked with United Airlines as an international flight attendant and supervisor between the years of 1963 and 2004. Mm-hmm. And... That's why my family was able to travel so much and go back and forth between Africa and Montana and Australia so frequently is because we had these standby plane tickets. And um, so, yes, my childhood was split between the nature reserve in South Africa. Growing up in Montana, actually at those periods of time, being put into a public school school. And, you know, not only having to wear clothes and shoes to school now, but also like asking permission to go to the bathroom and all these things that we do in America that were not necessarily something that was done in South Africa. But I learned to fall in love with that juxtaposition of culture and ecosystems and um, ways of, you know, navigating your environment, be it a wilderness area or a concrete jungle. And Australia is also very near and dear to my heart. I spent a lot of time living for chunks of the year in Australia, um, mostly Western Australia in my younger years and then in my teens, I spent a lot of time with indigenous Aboriginal Australians, sitting with them and learning about how they are custodian of the land and the animals and how they uh, tell their stories. And they use music a lot of the time and dance. And so I started to um, play the didgeridoo. And that's my way of communicating and connecting with adults and children and um, using the didgeridoo as a skeleton key of choice to kind of open the door to communicating because not everybody speaks english and music is an international language so it's my favorite way to connect with someone and then dive deep into conservation and travel and culture and just my intention is to plant these little seeds of curiosity about our world wherever I go with the youngest of humans, you know, and uh, because they're the future. So uh, to answer your question, Africa is in my heart, Montana is in my heart, Australia is in my heart, Um, but the more I travel and kind of expand my vision of what I want to do, I appreciate Missoula, Montana even more. And that vision I have cultivated is really honing in on what I want to do here in my community and um, in our rolling plains and prairie and and rivers and ecosystems and wildlife. I started interviewing people when I was 14 in China. Um, I wanted to work in China, so I started studying Mandarin and making frequent trips to China with my mom. And, you know, the best way to practice a language is in that country. A lot of the times it's with a taxi driver, so... um, (laughs) I would travel extensively in China, but I'd say my eyes really opened big when I was um, floating the Yangtze River, uh, which flows, um, you know, the the headwaters are in the Tibetan Plateau, but it uh, is now, you know, controlled by a dam in Yichang, China, which is called the Three Gorges Dam. And so I I traveled to China in my teens. um, Often in one of the trips in particular, my mother and I floated the Yangtze during the period of when they were relocating citizens and um, you know tearing down buildings so that the whole gorge area could be flooded um, for the largest hydroelectric power station in the world um, at least at the time and so I started to interview Chinese citizens practicing my Mandarin and uh, how old were you again? uh, 14 or so and so I uh, would ask them you know uh, what why how do you feel about being relocated you know, from these farms that you have been at for five thousand years, and that really um, opened my eyes to a couple things. And one of those was that the camera was a block between me and that person that I was interviewing. You know, it was like a barrier to really connect with them. So that's when I went more towards audio, hmm. and uh, started a radio show when I was 18. And, and that the roots of that are all uh, built upon storytelling, and um, and music, and at age 18, I also discovered uh, that you could get paid to guide whitewater. Um, so that was a 15-year f- journey um, where I guided over fi- over 250 days of the year, um, particularly starting when I graduated from the University of Montana with my degree in marketing and media arts. Um, I went full-on and uh, would be guiding full-time in the Grand Canyon between April and Uh, September, and then often after that season ended, that's when the New Zealand season started, so then I would guide sea kayaking expeditions in Fiordland National Park, which is on New Zealand's South Island's western coast, or head over to Morocco to guide on the Hansel River in the Middle Atlas Mountains, or in southern Africa on our Orange River Gorge, which the Orange River marks the boundary line between Namibia and South Africa. It slices through the southern Kalahari and Namib deserts. And... The reason I spent so much of my time and my physical energy, my body, my essence guiding, cause it's a lot, you know, to be out there. You're on the clock 24 seven, you know, and some situations you're taking these people through some of the biggest white water in the world and they maybe don't know how to swim or whatever it is. So it takes a lot of you to, you know, to, to put yourself there fully present. But the reason I did that is because I truly believe that the people who spend more time in these wild places are more likely to walk away and fight to protect them. You know, when you, you see that when you take people down the Grand Canyon for 15 days at a time and they suddenly evolve into this beautiful conservationist who is vigilant and pays attention and becomes a member of organizations who are fighting to make a difference. So, you know, I think that for me, guiding was a huge part in empowering people to uh believe in themselves and that they can do what they think they can't do because that's pretty fulfilling when you see someone overcome a fear and then have more uh, belief in themselves that's beautiful but also remembering why we're fighting to protect these places and uh, what's out there and how special it is so a little bit about myself um missoula is my home I've had a taste of the world and, and, and that's important to me to stay connected with with uh, what's going on worldwide and I just don't see myself at a stage now where I need to be living for months on end in a utility closet in the middle of Marrakesh, you know, uh, living on a $7 a day budget, you know, like that's maybe those that's an old chapter that's closing and now I'm really rooting myself down into Missoula and going to the farmer's market and getting a dog and and, and being a part of community because you can, the truth is you can travel your whole life but if you don't have a community it can be kind of lonely um towards the end there so I hope that answers your question that's beautiful
0: yeah thank you um so I'm curious about a couple of things I get uh this is where this is the part of the podcast where I always struggle to pick which question I want to go with first mm-hmm. <laughs> um but I think I want to start with uh the the core value, because I think anybody who, um, who works in a field that they believe in um, and works to preserve something that's important to them, you have to have this value um, or this reason to come back to uh, for your mental health and for the longevity of the work that you do um, to remind yourself of, of why you're doing it and why it's important. Um, and I think for me, it's always been most effective if, if I can narrow that down very specifically. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't have to be, uh, it can be very broad and specific at the same time, but I'm curious what that is for you in the conservation work that you're doing with us, but also in the conservation work that you've done on the river, um, and, and your connection to the natural world. Like what is the core value there that continues to drive you?
1: that we have one planet you know, like to think that there's another option at least for this generation or, you know, our friends and family's grandchildren, that they have another planet that they can go to it's nice that we have that technology, but why I feel like it's not too late um, I've I, I sincerely feel like hope is what it's all about especially with um, be it an issue regarding you know um, South Africa trying to heal from the apartheid era or uh, the world trying to recover from what we've been doing for the past 200 years and to really wake up open your eyes and, um, and notice that cause and effect is real and that we can actually change our behavior and teach the next generation how to change their behavior, and to um, and 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 that we actually might be see those those effects moving forward. Um, what first popped into my mind when you said that is just getting out there and, and actually getting your hands on it and getting your hands dirty. Uh, you know, Marsha and I were able to go and help with a beaver restoration project two weeks ago. And, and for me, that kind of recharges my battery. You know, mm-hmm. it's like getting out there in the field, getting your hands dirty, and just remembering at the end of the day what you're fighting to protect. But um, about 10 years ago, I was part of what was called the Oily River Rendezvous. And so it was a year that the Yellowstone River and many of the rivers in Montana were above flood stage. And ExxonMobil spilled over 42,000 gallons of oil in the Yellowstone River and we're not going to uh, clean it up uh, past a certain point right around the Billings area I believe and so um, my mentor Gary Steele and my partner Wesley we uh, paddled from where the cleanup effort stopped to basically until we didn't find any more signs of oil. So we we paddled until there were no more bathtub rings, until there were no more um, oily, uh, uh, unfortunately, until there were no more dead animals in the swamps covered in oil, until the signs were gone. And I think we paddled over 80 miles, and we documented along the way and communicated with the Billings Gazette about what we were finding. But uh, that was just pretty powerful to see what only three people, you know, Could do um, and that it might at the end of the day help with the continued um, effort of that oil spill and so uh, one of my favorite uh, African proverbs is if you think you're too small or too little to make a difference obviously you've not spent the night with a mosquito or something (laughs) like that Uh, so I just think that you know long-winded way to answer that question um hope that we can truly make a difference and that um it's not too late just when we start to nonchalantly um you know continue using plastic garbage bags and um forget to recycle our aluminium you know that's like a slippery slope into just not really being mindful at all about your waste. So um, I think I'm going to wrap it up there. Okay. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay. Um,
0: another question I had was because I believe that guides, uh, and you alluded to this when you were talking about being a river guide, that oftentimes they are the best ambassadors for the natural world because they are able to connect with people um, in very unique ways on uh in in the natural world and so I'm curious in your experience both what do you find most powerful about their um, aha moments that they have when they're in that environment with you but then also uh, I'm curious about ways to inspire an aha moment that's the educator in me I want to know how you get the aha moment
1: As a guide, you know, uh, most of my time um, recently has been spent in the Grand Canyon but we sleep on our rafts and so in the morning I wake up and I sit up and I'm on my raft and I look at shore and I I look at everybody and I try to connect with them and think of how can I make their day today, you know, like how can they connect with themselves and this environment and so everybody has a different way of learning. Everybody has a different way of communicating, and everybody has a different way of connecting. And so one thing that comes to mind was a guest who went down the river with me last year. Her name was Bodie. Her name was Linda Bodie. Um, unfortunately, she recently passed away of cancer, but her, she in private told me that she had a fear of snakes, and she really wanted to get over that fear of snakes. And uh, she didn't want anybody else to know that that she was going through it because it was pretty traumatic, the the fear she was working through. And so um, with that in mind, uh, her and I were able to um, spend some time uh, at a safe distance with the Grand Canyon pink, which is an endemic species of rattlesnake, only found in Grand Canyon. It's pink in color. They're very chill. They're very relaxed. You're honored if you get to even see one. Uh, oftentimes the Grand Canyon pink will give you a buzz, and then immediately move away from where it made that sound to attract the predator to where the sound came from. But um, a lot of the times you'll walk right past them and you won't even know they're there. They're they're big chillers. But her, she was able to connect with that snake. We didn't hold it. We didn't do anything. We just sat in its presence, and uh, and she was able to hear, heal through some of that trauma that she was storing inside, and and walk away with a deeper connection to that creature and to that environment that that creature spent its time in and um, we were able to later on connect and and she reached out to me towards the end of her life and 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 told me how powerful that was and it's kind of hard to talk about you get that little choke up in your throat when you're talking about things like this but you know i had no idea that it was that powerful for her to do that you know Mm -hmm. you can never underestimate someone's experience and what it means to them Mm -hmm. and for me, I'm very protective when it comes to a child's experience in any environment. But with my field, it's white water. And so the goal is to have fun and to not freeze to death or, you know, be starving or to, worst case scenario, fall out of the raft and have a swim. You know, I, because then often people will carry those experiences later on into their life. So I just like to have that um, that experience on the river or in the mountains um, or wherever it is that you are the desert uh, be a positive one and find out how people how they connect and to uh, incorporate that in your way of interacting with them you know and to honor that some people are shy and some people are introverts some people are extroverts some people Prefer the company of animals more than humans. I'm one of them, but um, you know, like just connecting with people and the way that they see the world, and um, and 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 also really encouraging people to get away from their screens and disconnect. I do a program with my mentor Gary. It's called getting primitive, and the idea is moving back in order to move forward. So getting kids outside, away from computers, running around in the woods. We um, we teach them how to use primitive weapons like atlatl, longbow, tomahawks, throwing knives. Teach them how to make a bow drill fire. Um, I teach them how to play didgeridoo, and we sit in the teepee and we tell stories. Uh, but for me, those are always aha moments after those... Um, experiences play out and you you kind of you just observe the uh the change in that person Um, and maybe you don't even really have to do anything you just facilitate an environment where they can unplug and sit among the wildflowers and notice the little things for once kind of go from this macro view of the the cell phone screen to the micro view of this beautiful world that we live in. I often answer your questions and completely forgot what the, <laughs> the question was in the beginning. I wonder if my guests do this now when I'm thinking about my radio show. But I hope that answers your question because I it, forget what the original...
0: Yeah, no, it, it answers it beautifully. <laughs> yeah, it, it, very, yeah. And I think it's, um, I, I appreciate that perspective for so many different reasons, but I think, um, you know, thinking specifically about Artemis when we're talking to people about um, hunting or fishing or conservation... Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that's important to me as well is, is helping people approach it. I I talk a lot, especially in our advocacy trainings or even in hunting and fishing, that there are, we all come to the table with preconceived notions about what it means to do something or be something. Um, and that we just need to do away with all of those preconceived ideas and figure out what it means for us. And I think you're taking the, the teacher's perspective of that, where you're figuring out, um, how you can help them um, figure out what it means to them, <laughs> that's a convoluted sentence. But uh, I, I appreciate that perspective and I hope that when uh, when people bring um, people into the field as mentors, mm-hmm. that they're taking the same approach. Um, it's not necessarily about what you need to teach them and it's not necessarily about uh, how you want to teach, it's about the person's experience and um, and how they want to approach it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was a bumblebee. It <laughs> was a big, beautiful bumblebee. <laughs> um, I am curious. Can you tell uh, tell me about your background as an angler?
1: Yeah. So, going back to South Africa to my earliest memories, um, maybe I can give you a photograph of me to, oh, to use. This. Yes. I'm thinking about this one particular picture where I'm holding a fish in one hand. We used to call them the red Roman. I'm not sure what they it was like the english translation but um i'm holding a fish in one hand and a shark in the other which is really curious because now i am fully infatuated by sharks and uh, spend quite a lot of time bringing awareness to uh you know shark conservation particularly great white sharks and the fact that humans kill about a hundred million sharks a year and not a lot of humans realize that sharks kill an average of like three to four humans a year. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to go on that um, tangent unless you want me to go there. But like there's this photo of me holding a fish in one hand and a shark in the other. And I'm sure we did end up eating uh, eating the shark. Um, but I would go fishing with my dad out in the ocean um, when I was big enough. When I was too small, I would um, had to sit on the beach because there was a fear that like some of the fish that we were going to be hooking out there was they were big enough to actually pull me into the ocean you know because right. i was so small so i remember um there was a time where i was sitting on the beach in south africa and i had the whole harness strapped on myself with the the, oh. the rod in this like cup on my chest and it was like i wanted to prove that i was big enough to to be able to be able to go out onto the boat that i wouldn't just get pulled in and i remember i did hook something right there on the Indian ocean. I don't remember what it was, but it, it, almost pulled me into the surf. You know, I still wasn't big enough to go out there. Um, but that was a lot of my experiences. It was just, you know, um, spending time on the ocean fishing with my dad. And then let's go ahead and juxtapose juxtapose to all the fishing that we did in Montana. Cause don't tell anyone, but there's some fishing that be done here. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, a lot of lure fishing, um, when, when I was a kid and, um, we would go to East Rosebud Lake, which is right in the Beartooth Mountain range outside of Billings, Montana. And there was a cabin that we would go to almost every weekend. And in the wintertime, we would snowshoe in, um, and we would cut a hole in the lake and fish. So we would fish there year-round. And my dad loves telling the story. I'm sure he's visiting me this week, and he'll probably tell it again about... I would just say, Dad, I can feel the fish. I can feel them tickling, you know, when when they were just about to bite. And... um, you know, apparently I, during one fishing trip, this young man said that I wouldn't f- catch any fish because I was a girl. And uh, I don't totally remember that, but apparently I caught like 12 or so that day and he didn't catch any. And every time he looked over, I'd, I'd pull my, my line of fish out of the water. And I don't remember that, but my dad loves telling that story. Um, and so enjoying being out, being quiet, fishing with my dad in Montana, fishing with my mom as well. My mom is a fly fisherman, so... On my mom's side, my, my, my grandfather, um, my great grandfather, my mother, all fly fishermen. My mother still cries when she sees the movie A River Runs Through It, because hmm. at the end, when they're quoting Norman McLean and you see the old man's hands tying a fly, my mom says that that's my grandfather's hands. Hmm. And um, so, my mom, I've inherited my mom's entire kit and quiver of ro- ro- rods. My mom's fly fished all over the world. Uh, one of her favorite places to go fly fishing was in tasmania and she'd often often get completely lost um in the forest down there and um, lose all track of time and so i think that i kind of going into it inherited that from my parents like just a love of being out there um not necessarily catching anything but just standing in the water uh, being quiet um and losing all track of time and and then you know heading back home when it felt right maybe got dark and you slept there on the side of the river you know um, but yeah um, now I'm uh, just absolutely love going fly fishing uh, won't go into great detail about where I've been fishing recently but um, I've been going out with friends and and um, looking for the browns and the rainbows in the shadows and uh, working on uh, uh, casting with a streamer
0: Bear. Sorry, there's a black bear walking across probably a uh, hundred yards from us. Oh, he's beautiful. Can you take a picture of him? Do you have yeah. your phone?
1: Wow. That's auspicious. He had Artemis.
0: Oh, look at him. Gorgeous. at that coloring he's a, like mostly a black bear but oop he can hear me has a like a brown ring a light brown ring around his waist and again around his bottom like he's wearing diapers <laughs> it's gorgeous hmm he just disappeared into the trees that was really beautiful. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> you, you could see the trees moving as he's like, I don't know if he's still walking or if he's pulling them down. That's, oh, wow.
2: That's suspicious for
1: a yeah.
0: Well, and I, um, I don't know if you're a regular listener to the podcast, but I have a fascination with bears. Mm-hmm. They're one of my favorite animals. So it's, a that was, that was lovely. Yeah.
1: A medicine man told me that when you see a bear or experience bear energy, that's a sign of like time for rest, time for hibernation. Yeah. I think we both need to listen to that, Mandel. Yes. Yes.
0: (laughs) Hibernating. Yep. Moving slowly Mm -hmm. and with purpose.
1: Like that beautiful bear just did. Yep. He or she is over there. I think just hanging out, we're probably going to yeah. we'll see him again in a moment. Nice. That makes me have a really good feeling about my game camera, too. That, oh, uh, yeah. Set up just, I'm sure, on that same trail. Wow. <laughs> Very cool.
0: I don't remember what we were talking about. <laughs> um, you were talking about fishing. fishing. Yeah, fishing. And uh, getting lost in the river. Yeah. Spending the night on the banks.
1: When I think about fishing i just think about the way that we lived um, we we depended on the the sea we didn't have a fridge we had a refrigerator yeah it was propane um it was a propane fridge uh it was only like it was like a car fridge so we didn't really use it that much when we went to the nature reserve we would have lots of powdered milk and canned food and lentils and things that could keep for months on end because we wouldn't go to town we would be out in the bush for months and so the fresh produce came from the sea and so when i think about fishing i still think about being on the nature reserve my dad had a rubber ducky which is what we call it in south africa i think it's a, a zodiac i think they call it in america it's like a raft with a wooden bottom ours did ours had a wooden bottom and an engine off the back and my dad going out to sea and coming back with our dinner. And he he fished every day. And out in front of the hut where I grew up, there's um, a little lagoon and he would go out there and cast a net. And when I think about my dad and when I think about fishing, I think about my dad throwing the net out and capturing uh, uh, probably some kind of species of whitefish to use as bait to catch the bigger species out at sea. Mm-hmm. I think about the stories that my dad tell, told me when he came back from fishing out at sea. You know, one in particular was being out there in the boat, which the boat itself was probably eh, 12 feet long or so. And he says that the sharks would always come out there, you know, when they're fishing. And one time he and his friend were fishing out at sea, and there was two sharks swimming around the boat. And it took him a few minutes to realize that That was not two sharks because the front dorsal fin was staying steady and the rear dorsal fin was actually moving back and forth. So that was actually the tail fin. So here they thought it was two sharks, but it was actually like one one. 20-foot shark that was circling their boat. And they got out of there real fast. But other days he said that there were dolphins as far as the eye could see in every direction. But he always came back with fresh fish. And I had my favorite fish. It was called Red Roman growing up. I can send you a picture of me holding one. And uh, we would always cook those on the open fire. Um, my d- there was a little table set out right in front of the hut, um, where he would get out of the boat and, you know, uh, clean the fish right there. And then we, my mom, had gotten the fire ready and um, probably baked some bread in the Dutch oven. And, and then we would cook the fish on the open fire and always eating in the dark because we'd never had coals. Yeah, coals. We didn't have coals in and and liquid. Petrol that you would put on the coals. We would build a fire with with driftwood, mm-hmm. and so you'd have to wait hours before the driftwood was perfect temperature um, and consistency mm-hmm. to cook a fish on the fire. And um, we did that in South Africa. We did that in Montana, cooking a trout on the fire. It was it's just that's how my parents met. You know, they both came from farming backgrounds, but they are both fishermen. My mom was a fly fisherman, and my dad was an ocean fisherman. So mm-hmm. I think that that's how they connected.
0: It's like. It- what is that uh the river why have you read the river Mm why i need to give that to you okay
1: yeah i look forward to reading it okay i mean i've just always been fascinated by the way that people gather from the sea all over the world and from the land as well but it's just pretty phenomenal the different ways that these diverse cultures worldwide um cultivate and harvest fish i mean what comes to mind right now too is as um the ancient, archaic uh, wooden fishing vessels that would head out into the uh, Bay of Bengal and the Indian Ocean when I was living. um, I lived in a a fishing village in India for a number of months called Kovalam. And um, the whole entire village surrounded the fishing, you know. And uh, going out early in the morning, and I connected with a man who, he was a fourth-generation fisherman, and he talked about the changes he's noticed um, in his fishing seasons because of climate change. And it's like, gosh, I want to connect Aaron with this guy, but the only way we can, you know, because we do this um, beautiful podcast as well called um, National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Vanishing Seasons. And so you talk to fishermen and hunters about these effects you've seen in climate change. And so this is one of these interviews I did in India uh, with this man, but there's no way you can contact him. I, I know where he sits, yeah. you know, by the fishing boats. Um, but you'd have to like travel there to to see them and you know he and 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 sometimes they would actually wade out into the ocean and they would have they would hold the reel in their hand you know and they had the, every every culture has this beautiful way of 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 reading their environment and and learning how to get those fish on the the dinner table but worldwide i'd say everybody's noticed that there's not as much there's not as much you have to go farther out
2: mm-hmm.
1: I think one of the things just
0: hearing you talk um, about your youth, but also your experience uh, traveling uh, around the world is there's just this, you know, I think I sense it in myself sometimes and I see it in other people as well, where we're so used to a certain level of comfort that we have a hard time um, just sitting on the edge of a, River um, and having dinner and and being in that moment without thinking about when we're going to move on Um, and I I just I think I see that in you still when you talk about um, your Land Rover and uh, the adventures you have in that already and just the comfort of of being present wherever you are Um, and 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 functioning in that environment I don't know if that makes sense but like y- y- eat where you are sleep where you are <laughs> um, connect where you are uh, and I, I find that refreshing I find that very refreshing
1: I encourage everybody to do that you know if you really want to connect with a, with a place to, to, to spend 24 hours there just for starts mm-hmm. and then maybe a couple of days and then maybe a week I mean we don't all have that much time to play with in um, in our culture we don't have you know necessarily a whole week to spend in a wild place but uh, for example we're at we're in the forest right now and this is a place where I've been scheming and dreaming for about six years to try to build a little home for my mom and the ideas and the connection that has uh, been born from sleeping out here is just uh, can't put it can't put a price on it I just I recommend that you connect with the land as deeply as you possibly can and if it's sleeping out there if it's you know spending time in the forest staring out waiting for an animal to come by that you might harvest and feed your family with and maybe not but you're still spending time and connecting with that environment you know or being on the edge of a river or a lake, be it frozen or thawed, and um, and I also coming back to yoga, just not having any attachment to the outcome. You know, can I talk about yoga? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so in the Yoga Sutras, written by Pantanjali, about two thousand years ago, it says, "Yoga's chitta vritti nirodha," which is Sanskrit for yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind and I truly believe that you can find that in many areas of your life it does not have to be wearing these tight clothes sitting on a mat doing these postures that is not yoga I mean that's one of the branches of yoga but you know maybe it's martial arts maybe it's painting maybe it's walking in the woods with your rifle maybe it's you know fishing on the side of a river Um, maybe it's sitting in meditation, but when you can really cease the wandering mind and really be where you are in that moment entirely, it's a beautiful way to, um, to navigate this world. And we're all working on it, you know, this, we have our good days and I've I wouldn't say bad days, but the days where we are, we're observing Mm -hmm. sometimes on my, my, my bad days where I don't find myself present. I try to maybe just imagine being an observer you know like being on the other side of the river observing me in the way that I'm deciding to to navigate the world that day because you create your own reality right like go out there and you know a few years ago on the river I found I encountered 12 rattlesnakes in one season and two of them were underneath my personal belongings like one of them was underneath my my bag at camp and I found it while I was looking for my head torch at night and it buzzed me and then crawled across my sleeping bag bed and uh, and, and and into the darkness of the night and uh, then the second time it crawled out from underneath my clothes while I was taking a bath in the river and I could have, you know, gone through my day being super paranoid that there were going to be snakes everywhere, but the truth is that you're so lucky if you're able to encounter a snake on your journey and you're able to be sitting in the forest with a friend and all of a sudden a bear pops up I mean, Uh that's coming back to what drives me is that we still live in a world where that just happened to us, you know or that a snake can decide that my backpack is a good place to rest for a moment you know, you create your own reality remember that and um, it's a constant practice you know Pantanjali also wrote that there's two pillars of yoga Abhyasa and Vairagya Abhyasa means practice. It can also be defined as repetition. You know, like, you repeat, repeat. You want to, you know, it, what is your practice? You keep repeating it. And then, non-attachment. Ayragya is non-attachment. And, and I like to remind my students to have non-attachment to the practice. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So.
0: I have two... I, uh, somewhat smaller questions. I feel like we've been talking about very big questions, which is (laughs) really, really fun. And what I enjoy a lot. Um, I have two smaller questions and one is, um, I'm curious with this, uh, career change and this delving into the sporting world, um, for a month, right? It's been a month since you started with us. Mm -hmm. What, uh, has it, what's been surprising um, or what's been interesting? What's caught your attention?
1: Maybe that's not a small question, sorry. <laughs> yeah. That's a very good question. I would say the passion and the connection that the sporting community has with land and the animals and how accessible that is for people who have not yet cultivated a love of be it hunting or be it fishing and that accessibility uh, can be provided by simply inviting someone out to go fishing for the day go out boating you know this week is National Fishing and Boating Week (laughs) y'all and um, I read a study that said most people who don't fish it's simply because no one's ever invited them to go out doing it Mm -hmm. and so I would just say that I've just, um, I I, I wasn't surprised, but I've been inspired by the passion of the hunters and the anglers that I've been able to um, spend time with recently, and how open they are to sharing what they know with uh, those who are curious, Mm -hmm. and um, I also think it's worth noting that hunters and conservation, hunters and fishermen, hunters and anglers are like the original conservationist and um, I don't know if a lot of people realize how much um, funding for conservation has actually come from uh, the money that's spent on uh, buying licenses and special taxes on gear and so there's a lot of beauty to that and there's a lot of connection to the land and the animal as well.
0: I do feel that that's a good segue into my next question which is what is your uh, what's on your bucket list to learn next when it comes to being an outdoors person and a naturalist? And...
1: Well, I think it's very important to find a good mentor. And that has been just part of my journey from the very beginning. And recently I've met a few potential mentors. Uh, one of them is very busy. She's about to move to Washington, D.C. and hmm. and lead the BLM. So <laughs> I'm referring to Tracy Stone Manning. I was very Um, honored to spend a few hours walking in this forest with her uh, about a week ago. Um, But another person is sitting with me here today, Marsha, and I'm just so grateful that we live in the same town and I'm really looking forward to learning from you. And um, and then the other evening we were able to sit with Jesse from the Wyoming Wildlife Federation and it's almost like I put the energy out there starting with the day that you and I went and did the beaver restoration work about how much I'd like to cultivate, or it was up there in the forest actually, when I told you that I would like to, um, sit patiently in the woods with a longbow, traditional style. And, uh, maybe an animal comes around, maybe it doesn't, but to have my grouping close enough where I could get a kill shot and, um, and harvest for my family, uh, using a bow and arrow. And I'm open also to rifles. You know, uh, my partner has, um, he's, he's an avid hunter and I go to hunting camp with him every year. Um, we do a whitetail camp and an elk camp. And my favorite part is the harvest. I love, um, quartering the animal and getting it out there and walking around in the forest. But, um, I really do feel a draw to, um, sitting quietly, like the Shoshone Bannock on the edge of the Middle Fork of the Salmon River where I, where I guided. Um, the Shoshone Bannock would make bows out of the horn of a bighorn sheep. They would take the horn and they would soak it in the naturally occurring hot springs there on the Middle Fork of the Salmon, wait for it to soften, and they would stretch the horn out and make a tiny little bow. And then they would sit quietly. And we were talking, like, patience. We are talking maybe a multiple days of waiting until um the right animal came along and it wouldn't necessarily be the healthiest biggest one it was maybe the sick one or uh, maybe an older one and and i really appreciate that uh patience and that mindfulness when when deciding to, to 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 be it pull the trigger or to um to let go of the arrow and uh that is something that i am looking very much forward to spending time with mentors such as yourself, Marsha, and Jesse. Jesse, after I kind of started to put that energy out there that I wanted to learn, she recommended um, what bow I might want to start with because um, I do shoot a bow and arrow, but it's usually at a target that's made out of cardboard and it looks like a mastodon because that's what we use for the kids, you know, but uh, to actually start to get serious about it and, um, and then maybe go down to Wyoming and... and um, September and and consider hunting elk and uh, maybe even the pronghorn, mm-hmm. um, but kind of like the er, er, the earth being our oyster and my list of places I want to explore and experience getting longer and longer. The mm-hmm. the ways that in which I want to experience um, the realm of connection via hunting and fishing is um, pretty extensive mm-hmm. because the way that hunting is seen and uh followed through in other countries is also quite admirable like for example hunters in the amazon who um do like heavy drugs and go hunting for like 48 hours or 72 hours at a time like i'm talking about heavy drugs i'm talking about yerba mate that Mm -hmm. which we drink in america you know to help focus and all that but that was actually originated because of hunting you know to be able to stay caffeinated during the hunt for days at a time and so uh I just, I'm so fascinated by it. Like, maybe one day taking my arrow tip and um, maybe rubbing it on the back of of, of of a little frog and, of course, sending him on his way and not bothering him <laughs> too much, just borrowing a little bit of that poison. But, yeah, I don't know. I just, I think it's just so fascinating, no matter where you are in the world, how people have learned to live with yeah. the land and the animals and only taking what they need. So. Fantastic. <laughs>
0: Well, that's um, uh, my bucket list includes traditional bow hunting um, as well. So that's something we can learn together, and that will be fun. Yes. Yeah. Looking
2: forward to it. Wonderful.
0: This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it took us to unexpected places, and um, we had unexpected guest stars, and uh, it was wonderful. I
1: mean, I've been doing this for like f- fifteen or so years. You know, like sitting in an in interview, and 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 I'm not. This is the first time in a very, very long time where I've been the one being interviewed, but sitting and you know, like doing an interview, and it feels different. I feel relaxed and um, and just so inspired by this environment. But I'll tell you, I never had a bear <laughs> walk into the picture while recording. That's right. no, just so wonderful. He just painted the picture of you know how he, what he looked like and him yeah. wandering off. I think he's still sitting up there somewhere. I see.
0: I haven't seen the trees move to indicate that he's gone his own
1: way it's about time for a nap anyways isn't it
0: and that looks like a lovely place (laughs) all right um that brings us to our weekly closer hits and misses what have you been aiming for and how did it go
1: when i considered that question earlier the one thing that came to mind was a, a, a dream of mine that i was able to consider experiment with and then follow through and um and I say it that way because I try not to, like, go into things with, like, this set goal. Because mm-hmm. um, then, that unmet expectations, some say, are the root of all suffering. So, mm-hmm. this, what I'm talking about is swimming the Grand Canyon with a, with a boogie board. And um, that got stuck in my head when I was 17 years old that I would do that one day and it was because I was canoeing the Alberton Gorge um with a man who's a champion canoeer um, at around thirty eight thousand CFS. <clears throat> so that's not recommended, um, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> yeah. But you if you're gonna do it, do it with professionals. And that day we were. We were doing a swift water rescue training. It was my very first swift water rescue training. And I remember I was the only one who volunteered to canoe with Alan that day. And, um, he, when we got to the tightest section of the gorge, he told me we we're going to flip. And I said, no, no, don't be positive. We're not going to flip. And sure enough, we did a, an ender. We flipped at the bow over stern. And I remember how much I enjoyed being in the river and, and feeling the currents and how calm I felt in that water and was really enjoying the experience up until, When I got rescued, um, (laughs) I was like, no, I have no worries, mate. But, um, yeah, I was rescued by this river board. So a river board is like a big boogie board with four handles, and it's designed for river rescue, life bait rescue. And um, I got pretty hooked on uh, swimming the rivers as much as I possibly could with the aid of a river board. And I knew that one day I would attempt to swim the entire Grand Canyon with one. And uh, that opportunity came in February of 2020, Just before the pandemic, um, I had come over from South Africa right when the first COVID-19 case arrived via Nigeria, and it was kind of like, oh, yeah, this is going on in the background, but here we are, we're going to go in the Grand Canyon now and be present for 15 days, and um, I went into it thinking that it would be akin to a moving meditation. Um, My biggest fear was that I would fall behind and hold everybody else up, but swimming in the river... The thalweg is a really fun word, by the way, for mm-hmm. those who maybe don't know it. Uh, T-H-A-L-W-E-G. Uh, so it's like the, f- the fastest current in the river, um, and it's mm-hmm. about four and a half feet below the surface. And so when you s- fall out of a raft or you're swimming via use of a riverboard, you're going to be actually faster than the raft because you're in the thalweg. So by utilizing the thalweg, I was able to stay out in front. I, w- I wore a dry suit and about 10 layers of really itchy... Um, wool Mm. half of which I purchased the night before the expedition because I saw that it was supposed to be snowing when we started but I thought okay let's just see how the first two days go and then we'll readjust and maybe I'll decide after that if I want to spend another 13 days swimming in the Colorado and um, it was an incredibly beautiful experience the I'd say that the most challenging part of it was the flat water because the Colorado River that runs through Grand Canyon is actually mostly flat water um, a lot of the vertical uh, drop is made up of the white water, I'd say the majority is but there is quite a lot of flat water um, almost lake-like flat water and um, it was just an, an amazing way to once again connect with the river that was my intention was to have a deeper connection with the currents below the surface I'd been spending so much time above the surface you know over half the year in a raft but what's it like below the surface what's it what's it like for the fish down there um and i'm we're talking about you know the way that the 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 current would change as we approach the horizon line to the way the current behaved within the rapids themselves to you know floating below the little colorado river and actually having a humpback chub nibble Hmm. on um you know on my finger while i'm i'm swimming in the water it was a, it was a beautiful way to connect. And, um, yeah, the whole swim lasted about 15 days and I was with a training trip so that I I did have access to modern technology. You know, I didn't have to carry my own poop out and I had access to really good food and, and clothes, which is good because I was eating like high school again. I I was eating, you know, three plates of food a day, but I still lost about 15 pounds just because my body was fighting to stay warm and I was kicking all day long. But, um, it was a beautiful way to connect, and I feel a completely different um, energy now mm-hmm. after after swimming that river. And so that is the first thing that comes to mind. Just it was it was uh, a dream for over a decade. I I want to remind people that you may have these dreams that are followed away, but you know life's short, and the the hardest part is showing up, be it with yoga or to your dreams. You know. Sounds kind of corny, but it's <laughs> it's it's true. it's true, right? <laughs> um, it's just, go into your dream closet and dust off some of those ones that you've filed away, and you know, buy that ticket to whatever country it is that you've been wanting to go to. Especially since travel is starting to open up now, and mm-hmm. and when you go there, also I'd I'd recommend that you look into ways that you can give back when you're there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's 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 um, organizations that have actually. Uh, lists of 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 supplies that those countries need that you can actually bring with you and can really help when you go so that you're not just taking but um or um learn to hunt or you know i'm not sure if i totally recommend swimming the grand canyon i mean it was it was (laughs) yeah (laughs) it was you know i wrote an article about it in the end i i kind of joked like i'd recommend kayaking you know um but i'm glad i did it and uh the pictures in the article are are pretty fun. Um I'm just completely being a not, just completely consumed by brown water mm-hmm. most of the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the th- the funny thing is that my dry suit was broken for the majority of that trip so I was actually wet <laughs> for most of it. Wet and cold. Like wet and cold, yeah. But uh builds character. I yep. mean, it's like I think it's important to get uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm not I'm not I'm I'm going to take out the I think I want to say it's important to get uncomfortable, you know?
0: Growth doesn't happen when you're comfortable. Yep.
1: Yep. To add on to the fishing thing, there was something I was going to say. I forget, but um, I, I wanted to say that my mother and I would go fishing in DePoyer, which which like is up on the north-central part of Montana. And there were places that we would go fishing up there where I couldn't even let my fly be on the water for... Two, two seconds before another fish would jump and bite and so you know that is a major part of the way that I bonded with my parents and um I'm really excited to be able to get back into it again now because as a guide I'm I was always the person rowing you know mm-hmm. like rowing the, the 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 dory or the raft to make sure that we stay on the eddy line where the that eddy hogs are going to be where my guest my client can catch a fish but uh just the other day was one of the first times where I went out and I was like, I don't have to row all day. Like my friends are going to take turns, you know, cause I'm not just the guide, you know, mm-hmm. I get to actually fish as well. Um, so I'm really excited about that, you know, getting, getting back into, um, not necessarily helping someone else to, to, to go fishing, but to go fishing myself too, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, we should go sometime. That sounds good. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Um that's amazing. Yeah, my hit and miss is, is a little um uh I don't know how to I don't I am trying to pick the right adjective for it. Um a little bit more recent, mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit smaller. <laughs> but as I mentioned, my sister and her family were visiting and uh I have two nephews, um one who's nine and one who's twelve. And the twelve-year-old is um really interested in fishing, so he was able to go on the Missouri on a guided trip this well while he was here and catch some fish and that was amazing. Saw some big smiles. Um but I they were open to trying some wild game. So I made some uh antelope for them, some sweet and sour antelope meatballs, and then I also made some bear for them. I did some barbacoa bear tacos, um, which was a a, a a shoulder roast, a bone and shoulder roast that was slow cooked and they devoured it. They devoured them both and Um, and really loved it and and that was exciting to me because I think that was the first time that they'd ever tried game and I didn't I mean I went all in right I didn't say here's some venison let's have some burgers like we had antelope and we had bear um, and they loved it and so that was exciting and now my oldest nephew is coming out in November to go out east um, with us to go antelope and mule deer hunting so Excited, yeah. Um, Kind of just hearkening back to what we were talking about. It's taking um, somebody's desire to connect with nature in a new way and really just fanning those flames and loving to see um, what comes from it. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I was at a fishing camp about three weeks ago up at Missionary Way, and um, one of the retired fishing guides said to me, with a little bit of tears in his eyes that there's nothing that compares to a child catching their first fish in his boat.
0: Yeah, oh, oh, I bet. And this sweet nephew is very reserved, and his smiles are only for special occasions. And to see that big smile break out on his face, yeah,
1: lovely. So kind of going back to the, the, the history of fishing in my life, um, there was a period of time where I was experimenting with uh, not eating any meat and not eating any dairy and kind of just being as simple as I possibly could, kind of just nuts and dried fruit and, you know, lentils and all that kind of stuff, just kind of what I could grow myself, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was, um, at that point also, this was I think about seven years ago, I got dropped off on an isolated island off the coast of Panama. And to get to that island, it took... Three buses riding on the back of a pickup truck and a punga which is like this little um little boat with an engine on the back and i got dropped off with a bag of rice and a bag of beans and my recording equipment with the intention of recording stories and mainly the sound effects of the eventide egg vertebrates and invertebrates but i started to really connect with this idea of swimming out there in the surf with a spear gun and I just had to listen to my instincts. My body wanted to eat the fish. Yeah. And I think that we all, if we really tune in and listen to what our body's asking us to eat, then we'll find that balance, you know? Um, so I, I listened to my instincts. And I decided to pull the trigger and, 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 uh, and spear the fish right off that, that island after interviewing Fishermen about all the sharks that are out there Um, and then of course the sharks come in you know spearfishing is you want to have a shark encounter that's a great way to have a shark encounter they'll come in from all directions and um, mainly tiger sharks but got to shore um, cooked that fish in hot oil with some salt and then a fresh green naranja uh, uh, is it orange off the tree And I can tell you, protein never tasted so good. (laughs) And so what it taught me was to listen to my body. I just felt a total change in my system after feeding myself that protein and also that connection to what it took for me to go out there, swim out there with the spear gun, my one shot, take my one shot, get it back to shore while it's bleeding with all, you know, the sharks. sharks Yeah, yeah. And then getting to shore, um, taking the time to prepare it. And then my goodness, enjoying it there on the beach um, with a coconut on the side. I mean, that to this day is one of my best meals I've ever had. And what I learned from that was just trusting my instincts, listening to my body. It will tell me what I need. And, um, that food tastes extra good when when you work for it.
0: It's so true. (laughs) So true. Oh, this is wonderful. Thank you. Here's to many more conversations uh cheers cheers to many more conversations from this very spot yes and hopefully another sighting of our bear friend yes yeah uh thank you to everybody who joined us this week for the artemis podcast be bold stay curious and get outside